0: Hello, and welcome to the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. On this Best Deal episode, we will explore the human side of real estate investing with a seasoned pro about the legendary best deal of their life. The deal isn't just the investment, it is also the person executing it. Stay with us and learn what it takes to be the best investor possible. Hi, this is Scott Royal-Smith, and you're listening to the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. Today, I have with me Fernando Ayes. He's a longtime real estate investor, as well as one of these tech gurus inside of what people are doing to better leverage data and analysis to make the best deals possible. So thank you, Fernando, for coming on the show with me today.
1: No, you're welcome, Scott. How are you? I'm doing
0: great today. I'm just excited to have this opportunity to speak with you today on your best deal that you've ever done. And during this episode, of course, we're going to be walking through it. It's kind of like a walk down memory lane of what that deal was like and more of the human side, right? Of what that is. What is that actually like to be Fernando and, and walking through one of those deals? That sounds good to you?
1: Sounds great. Yeah. yeah.
0: Excellent. Well, Fernando, just so we can get a good feel for you here today, can you walk us through a little bit about what your experience has been as a real estate investor and Also, let us know. I know we have a lot of great listeners here that are always looking for top flight people to associate with. And what kind of people are you looking to attract in your life to work with you? Sure.
1: Yeah. So I think the best way to describe what I am currently is I am an entrepreneur in income property investing and software applications. I had built a career in computer chip design for over 25 years, most recently at Apple for 10 years. And doing that for so long, I decided that I wanted to take the money that I've made in in tech and try to put that into a somewhat more passive type of income stream and made up my mind that real estate investing, especially rental properties, would be the way to go. So, many years ago over six years ago, I decided to to start building a portfolio of income property rentals across the u s so, I did that. I got enough income from those properties to retire from corporate america, retire from apple, and also, after building that portfolio i uh with a partner, bought a software company that allows Real estate investors to evaluate properties and also track their properties and the income and expenses and so on and allows them to uh, come up with forms that can be used to fill out their schedule E's for rental properties and track and analyze the investments through graphs and data that comes out of the of the software tool. So that's kind of an overall. I, I also have some interest in uh, biohacking and longevity and I'm uh, a Bulletproof Coach with the com. I'm also an investment counselor for clients at Jason Hartman, Platinum Properties Investment Network. And I also have my own podcast show as well, along with Jason, which is the Longevity and Biohacking podcast show. So that kind of gives you an overview, Scott. We can dive in into different areas as as you see fit.
0: Yeah, that sounds awesome, Fernando. I mean, it, it just sounds really great. One of the things that I got really excited just in listening to that that I think everybody should be doing it's really digging into tools that are going to allow them to see data about what's going on with their investments and that are going to help them streamline their taxes. Yeah. I bet that you guys are doing a lot with that with your biohacking as well, right? With yeah. Actually, track that to make sure that because
1: there's a ton of fad diets, right? But the daddy doesn't lie on what really matters, right? Exactly. I'm very i I have an engineering background. So you would imagine that I have a love for data. And I do that on a personal side with uh, getting my biomarkers done, my blood tests, blood work done every six months or so, and looking for different trends and keeping track of how things are going and do experiments in in biohacking and change my diet and so on. I want to make sure that I know what that looks like and what results I'm getting with actual data. And of course, with real estate tools, we offer a similar type of data tracking uh, for investors. And I do that myself. I'm a client as well. And I certainly look at all the trends, all of the different areas that I invest in, uh, how my total income is coming. I break it down into different segments and look at the financial indicators and uh, really monitor things. And I think the more involved an investor is, the more, I guess, the educated th- decisions can be made. And therefore, fine tuning the portfolio as it goes along becomes a lot easier.
0: Yeah, And that software allows you to leverage your time, right? So it's saying, hey, maybe you don't have to spend a ton of time doing this, but if you set up the systems and you have the software tuned to give you the reports you need, you're going to be making a lot better decisions without having to spend 20 hours a week on your real estate, right? Oh, yeah, with no doubt.
1: Behind that, right? Exactly. That's the idea. I mean, you got to look at the low hanging fruit. Where can I spend the least amount of time for the most benefit? Quick example could be if I'm looking at, charts of expenses and I can easily see the property taxes or insurance or property management is really taking the bulk of the money, or it has changed significantly from the prior year, I will dig into that and find out, well, what happened? Should I change insurance company? Should I rework the contracts that I have or change property management? And without that data, it's just unprofessional. If you really want to build a portfolio. You don't necessarily have an issue if you have just a couple of properties, but I have dozens of properties and without having software and a ways to really focus my time, it would be very inefficient.
0: I'm sure people that are just wanting to learn a little bit more about what you do, the best place to do that is probably through your podcast. And or or how would they find out about what it is that you do in terms of this data analysis when it comes to the biohacking and the the investing side of it?
1: Well, I can direct people to my website, com, And that's A-I-R-E-S, spelling of the last name. So you can just go there and you can see a little bit of what I do. And then they can schedule an appointment and we can talk a little bit more. I don't provide data from my personal portfolio there. This is something that I can explain how you know, I produce it on a one-on-one basis. But in looking at our site for our software tools, you get an idea of what that looks like. And that's tools.com. Just one word, realestatetools.com. And from there, you see links to the different products that we offer and some of the reports that we offer. I go a step further because of my engineering background. I get the detailed reports from Property Tracker One of the tools in real estate tools, and then I create charts, and I'm always tweaking different ways to look at charts to look for particular trends and that sort of thing. But that's that's probably the first place to go to those two websites.
0: Awesome. And the reason I wanted to dig into that right away in the very beginning episode, most people wait till the end to start plugging, but I wanted to go ahead and get that out for everybody because this is really a great way for you to understand where Fernando is going to be coming from with when he talks about what his best deal is. we have to understand. The way that somebody's mind works when they're approaching the different deals that they're doing, and we're going to find out from listening to the number of people that we interview on the show, is that there's different ways that people are thinking about real estate that happens behind the scenes, right? So I'm going to just take a wild guess, and that Fernando is going to be one of our much more data-driven type of investors. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we kind of dig into your best deal, so um, if you want to kick us off here, can you tell us a little bit about what was that? best deal? What did that look like? And when did that start for you? What year was that?
1: Sure. Yeah. I thought about talking uh, to you and picking the best deal. And there's different ways to judge what that best deal was. But I'm going to go with a deal that I made at the end of 2012, 2013. I actually didn't have that much experience in the rental property investing side yet but I had enough properties and enough contacts which allowed me to be introduced to a bank you know, a local community bank in Georgia near Atlanta. And this bank, as you recall we had the recession in two thousand eight, of course it, it lasted for a few years. This bank had a whole bunch of properties that they had financed and a lot of them were for developers during that recession period. And Loans went bad. They ended up recalling them and, and getting a bunch of properties that they had financed in their books. And they were not in the business as most banks are. They're not in the business of rental properties and, and they didn't want to keep these properties in their books. So they were looking for investors that would be willing to buy the properties from the bank. And along with buying the properties, they would offer the financing as well. So I was introduced to this uh, local bank, and at the time they had a package of fourteen properties in Georgia, all around uh, Atlanta. And these were what I call A to A minus to B plus type properties, tenants that are on the higher side, pay more income, they're more expensive homes, at least relative to what I was looking for at the time. So I looked at this uh, package of properties; it was, there was fourteen of them, and out of those fourteen, I decided to concentrating on 10 of them that had the best rent to value ratio the RV ratio which essentially means that if i take the amount of rental income market rental income for that particular property divided by the price the value of the property i usually try to stay within 1% uh, ratio so I, I looked at the ones that were closer to that ratio or at that ratio or, or better and i picked 10 of them back to the bank and made a proposal to buy these properties, we negotiated some repairs that needed to be done to these properties. Some of them already had tenants in them. So there was really very little to be done. The bank at the time, they were really interested in selling these properties. So they were offering a phenomenal deal. This, this, uh, the terms on the loan for the package of 10 properties was essentially 10% down. So 90% loan to value, which is very difficult to get. And they were offering a fixed rate for 10 years for 4.375. And then it would adjust after 10 years. And But there was a cap on that maximum interest rate. And I, I don't have the numbers exactly in front of me, but the, but the cap keeps it under 5%. It's a really reasonable interest. And this is um, a 30-year uh, loan, as I a measure, 10-year fixed. And then it adjusts, I think once every 10 years, and then another time 20 years, uh, 10 years after that. So for this particular package, the purchase price was close to one and a half million dollars, but the down payment, because of the 10% down, was only 150000 And if you add in closing costs and some of the financial-related closing costs and so on, I only needed maybe close to 170000 to get the properties purchased, So I went ahead and I purchased a set of 10 properties and they were basically performing. we got a few of them that we need to do some work and then put them back into the market. So that was the end of 2012, beginning of 2013. And I was just looking at the numbers before we got into the podcast interview. And these properties have done very well. If I look at the amount of just starting with equity in these properties... As I mentioned, the amount that they were valued at, at the time that I bought them for was about $1.5 million. Well, as of January of this year, they're worth $2.2 million. So they have appreciated quite a bit. And if you take into account the investment itself, the cash-on-cash return that you have, along with return on equity is what I'm trying to get at. If you look at the cash flow plus the equity plus the mortgage paydown, You're looking at, or I'm looking at, a total return on investment of 384%. And obviously, this is highly leveraged because the bank was doing that 10% down, 9% LTV type of financing. So for listeners that are maybe a little bit confused, a little bit unclear on how beautiful it is to have financing with such high leverage, think of it this way. If the investment in one of the properties or, or the package of properties goes up by 5% a year, which is very reasonable, I think historical terms for real estate properties, if you, depending on where you look, 6% is pretty reasonable. So 5% is definitely doable. If you get a house that appreciates 5% a year, but you're leveraging that 10 to 1, right? Because you're only putting, or in this case, I only put 10% down. So In reality, I'm not getting a 5% return. I'm getting a 10 times 5% return. So I'm getting 50% return on my cash investment. So if you add that return along with the cash flow and the appreciation, first part is appreciation with the cash flow, you can get these sorts of returns. And that's the, the actual number that I have from my data is 384%. I still own all of these properties. They are all performing. I have not sold any of them. I intend to keep them. Uh, the only bad news, if you were to call this a uh, bad news in this story is the fact that there is quite a bit of equity built into these properties and almost nine, a million dollars <laughs> uh, built into these properties. And I'd like to tap into that equity, but by doing so, I'll have to refinance and give up that beautiful term for finance that I have. So that's my best deal. I really think this worked out really well. Hopefully I'll I'll be able to keep them for many more years and, and roll them into another set of investments with a 1031 exchange in the future.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it, Fernando. I just wanted to dig into this best deal. There's a phenomenal deal that really only exists at certain time frames or deals like that really available, I think, right? I mean, it really takes a certain set of circumstances like, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. There was an incentive for the bank to do this and they had the properties, but you remember the real estate is cyclical. So uh, this sort of thing will happen in several different locations as time goes on. Absolutely.
0: Right. And and it's about, but I was thinking about it when I was hearing your story, it was, I was like, man, what is it like trying to develop those relationships with the banks? Right. I mean, I know some people get nervous about how do you do that and how does that conversation go and it's really kind of putting yourself out there? What was your experience? What's the good and the bad side of being Fernando and trying to
1: develop that relationship with the banks? Well, what I would advise people to do is is just get started somehow. There's nothing magic about relationships. The easiest way to build a relationship is to get started. I mean, that's the requirement, the first step. And in this case, it wasn't anything in particular, that made it happen I just happened to had bought a house with a provider, or a rehabber or somebody that did a fix and flip in the area. And they did some work with this bank. Nothing special. Again, they just got financed or did some work with this bank. And it just happened that the bank mentioned it to this developer or to this rehabber that they had several properties they wanted to unload and didn't know any investors that were there. So, oh, so
0: that was actually like almost unintentional then. I mean, it was an existing network and it's just like, hey, you met your buddy at a meetup group or whatever, right? And he's like, exactly. hey, I got this but, lead into something
1: you might want to check out. Exactly. But you have to be kind of an interest analogy. You have to be in the rain to get wet, right? You have to be willing to go out there and do your deal and get started. And then you'd be amazed how things just kind of come together. And there's, I think, an initiative that needs to be there. Okay. The other aspect of building relationships that I want to mention is I've done it in a different way where I just searched around if I wanted to buy properties. And I remember I bought some properties in Texas, in Austin. And I wanted to know if there were banks in the area that were willing to lend. And I just did a bunch of searches and found a a credit union that had some good terms. And just by doing some research, I got to work with them. And, And of course, after working with them for a few years, uh, now I have a relationship with them. They, you know, I have history and so on, and we're able to do more business. And if in similar terms to to this one in Georgia that I described my best deal to you, if this other credit union in, in Texas has properties that they wanted to sell to investors, I'm sure they'll think of me because I have a relationship with them. So that's also an avenue.
0: And that's also relationships with particular people at the bank,
1: Right. Like with
0: sure, uh, it's this business development person that's at the bank, and those people, are, in my experience, have always been pretty savvy themselves about what does that relationship look like. So much so that I learn a lot from them by just going in and talking to them and being like, "Hey, you know, this is kind of what I'm thinking to go in this route, and I just want to meet with you." They're salaried, right? So they're happy to pretty much sit down with anybody. Oh yeah, to oh, just yeah. talk with them, right? I think we have a lot of people that are just trying to get comfortable. By saying, I would go into a bank, I'm happy, Fernando, to go into a bank and talk to people. I just don't even know what to say to even get the conversation going, to start that conversation to build over time. And my point of view on it is, maybe you don't have to know a whole lot. It can really be like, I have an intention to do XYZ, banker. Tell me what you know about what you see people doing that works. Do you think that's a viable strategy for people? Oh, yeah,
1: definitely. Yeah. Just remember that banks, especially the community, the credit unions, the smaller banks, they're there really to help develop the community. So they literally have incentives from the local government, in many cases, to help local businesses and investors. And some of them have some requirements where you have to be a resident of the particular region or that state, or they want you to open accounts with them. I mean, you have to be a little bit flexible and be able to talk to several different banks and turn some of them down, or sometimes they'll turn you down because you don't fall into their requirements. But yeah, you don't need to do much. You don't need to know much. Just set an intention, tell them what you want to do. You're an investor and you're looking to buy properties and hold them. In my case, hold them for the longer term. One thing that I would caution people doing is the bigger banks are, especially for conventional financing, the one that I mentioned here is a commercial type financing, just because not backed by Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. If you're going to talk to a big bank like Wells Fargo or Chase, they usually don't understand the investor mentality and they're looking to work with homeowners. And it becomes very difficult to get anywhere with them. And I had bad experiences trying to get this in you know, my early investment phases. So local banks, community banks are your better bets if you're trying to do something similar to what I did.
0: That's great. And Fernando, when you're looking to maintain those relationships with the banks, with the bankers there, how, how frequently do you typically circle back to get in contact with anybody you're trying to maintain that professional relationship with?
1: Not frequently. The banks require yearly refresher of your financial statements. So of course, at least once a year, unless I'm trying to invest more in the area or I want to pick their brain, I don't really you know, do much. Just might send an email here and there with questions uh, that I might have, but uh, it doesn't take much effort.
0: So really to stay on the top of the mind of bankers to refer you deals that they would have coming up, you just kind of focus on, generally speaking, it sounds like where's the geography of where I think I want to invest? Let me target a bunch of banks to find out who's working with investors here and then narrow that down to a few individuals really that you wanted to then focus on developing relationships, but short-term relationships, right? Like who
1: has deals for me now? Right. Yeah, Right. Keeping in mind, Scott, that this is not my business to do flips. So I keep uh, my properties longer term. So I don't have a need to keep tabbing, tagging on them and and see what they have available frequently.
0: Gotcha. Okay, cool. I was just wondering, um, the reason I was digging into that um, for anybody that's wondering about that, and maybe Fernando's wondering why I'm harping on this so much, is because it's one of the big deals that you hear about as a beginning investors and even experienced investors is, is where are you getting your deals from? And I think these relationships are, in my experience, have been invaluable because even like the the guy that referred you over the deal to this existing, your best deal here, that probably generates quite a bit of, say, 384% goodwill back to him right? oh, yeah. for everything yeah. he
1: gave you, right? Yeah, for sure. And of course, I'm still doing business with him and his company and those sorts of relationships are, are the ones that... As long as the deal is good for both sides, they tend to remain in place. And you never know in the future when other opportunities come up. Now, as long as you're straight with the people that you're doing business with and they see that you respect them and you're trustworthy, then doors will open. That's
0: fantastic, Fernando. And so, on this one, you have the deal that starts from the bank by negotiating the terms or the initial piece with them. And you said there was a review process that happened with the assets itself. Is there any point in here that you're, having to struggle with you know, any potential red flags or any, any pieces of this deal that are giving you pause along the way to create nervousness or anything like that in the deal. I find there's usually no deal that's from start to finish. Everything's perfect and it's cloud nine. Usually most things are a roller coaster as we go through an investment. I'm just wondering if that was your experience with even your best deal. Yeah, that's a
1: good question. Going back to the starting phases of the deal... I mentioned that metric, the rental value ratio, the RV ratio. And I remember when I was looking at these properties, as you recall, the original number of properties were 14 and I ended up cutting four out of the deal because that RV ratio wasn't high enough. Even looking at the ones that remain, the 10 properties that remain, the one, I guess, concern that I had was that these properties at the time... In 2012, end of 2013, the RV ratios were strong. They were 1.25 or even above because we were still under that recession as it was trailing off. But the package of properties that I bought, I think in aggregate had an RV ratio of less than 1%, which meant that they weren't generating enough rents compared to others, relative to others. So, I was concerned that I was, if the properties didn't increase in value and the rents didn't increase in value fast enough, that I would have made a bad investment where I would have to take money out of my pocket because I would have negative cash flow in these properties and I'll have to maybe sell one or more uh, to cover my investment. So, that was a concern. It turns out that it went uh, completely on the positive side, the rents went up they always trail the property values, but they went up fast enough to cover property taxes increases and to push that RV ratio to be closer to 1%. And also the values of the properties went up. But for several months, <laughs> again, going back to the beginning of the transaction, I was a little concerned that it wouldn't work. But as of right now, looking back, it was a tremendous good deal. And I don't have any issues with the bank and the properties have their normal issues wearing and, tear, and Make readies when tenants move out, but we try to mitigate those by keeping tenants a longer period of time. The other, I think, positive that came out of this was a learning that happened. And that learning was that when I looked at some properties that I have that have a better uh, rent to value ratio, a better RV ratio, compared to these properties, which are A type properties with tenants that are A class, the tenants that are that are in the A class tend to stay longer in the property and over the long term, having less vacancy will yield better returns. Even though on paper, when you first purchase a property, they might not look like they will return as much as properties in places where you can get a better uh, RV ratio. So this was pretty interesting and it worked in my favor. And I didn't know that in the beginning. So interesting. Interesting. Uh, Sometimes you just don't know exactly what you're getting into, and sometimes it works uh, really well, and it could have gone the other way, but uh, it certainly worked out well.
0: Well, what I thought was neat about one of the things that stuck out to me anyway was that you were kind of depending upon appreciation, sounded a little bit from what you said, which a lot of people warn against. They say, if it's not cash flowing right at the beginning, don't get into it. You, know, you hear Grant Cardone, a lot of guys talk about that. Um, It it sounds like you made a different play in here because maybe some other things in the deal looked like they were really great, like your loan to value and and being able to get in there sounds really nice. But one thing that I wanted to underscore that I thought was neat that you kind of rushed through quick was that you had an exit strategy if you were wrong, right? When you said, I'll sell a couple of properties and then I'll be back to being okay.
1: Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. I also subscribe to the idea that you have to buy a property uh, that makes sense the day you buy it. If you're buying something hoping that it's gonna appreciate and that's your only out, that's gambling. That's not investing. If you're not getting a return, it's not real investing, a real investment, honestly. So yes, you're right. I took a little bit of a gamble on this one. Of course I pruned the list down a little bit to keep the properties that were in the higher likelihood of of giving me positive cash flow. But they were nice enough properties that I know that I could go into retail and sell them if things became ugly. So yeah, you're right. There was a little bit of a gamble that I did there, calculated, but I had to make that decision at the time. And, and it turns out that it was the right decision.
0: Yeah, it definitely was. And I just wanted to, uh, the last piece of this that I wanted to touch on with you, Fernando, as we kind of wrap up the episode, yeah. is to look at when you negotiated the proposal with the bank at the end, was there pieces in that that, presented particular challenges um, that you had to overcome in negotiating that proposal? Or was that essentially,
1: you just told the bank, this is what I'm going to do, and they just accepted it? Well, the short answer is we negotiated very little. The bank did not have a lot of leeway in what they could do. But what they had was so good that I tried to get a little better interest rate or try to lower my max cap a little bit so that I could keep the loan limit reasonable. But what they had was pretty good. So we didn't have a lot to haggle about. The only part that I recall that created a little bit of friction was we had all the properties inspected when I purchased the package. And based on that inspection there were a bunch of items that we requested the bank to fix. And that they pushed back a little bit, going back and, and leaning on the fact that The terms were so good for the loan that why should they pay for any repairs and that sort of thing. So we went back and forth and they ended up covering enough.
0: And so Fernando, we talked a little bit just now about how the banks were pushing back. And I was interested to hear a little bit more about how did you handle that situation and what were you able to do to increase your leverage in that via other information that you were able to use or a tactic or leveraging your relationship with the banker, but proved to be successful for you there.
1: Sure. So we knew we had great terms going into the deal. The bank had an incentive to sell the properties because they they wanted to unload. So we tried to negotiate as much as we could on the terms of the loan, but I really didn't push that hard because I knew they didn't have much leeway. What we ended up doing was uh, getting an inspection done for all the properties. And the bank was obviously okay with that. I wanted to make sure if the properties were in good shape and so on. And in doing the inspections, we found a few issues and we requested the bank to fix these issues. And I don't quite remember the exact dollar amount that it came down to be, but the bank pushed back a little bit and they said, well, you know, we're giving you such great terms and these properties are mostly performing. Why do you want us to go fix anything? We went back and forth and ended up uh, getting that concession from them and they ended up paying for the repairs that we had for the properties. And actually, I'm looking at the numbers right now. There was, it's close to, well, depends on how you look at it, close to $20,000 in repairs that they ended wow. up uh, agreeing to doing.
0: Yeah, so, but aren't you afraid of losing the deal when you're negotiating with them back and forth? Because you already know it's a good deal, right? Even
1: yeah. If all that? You always ask. The worst you can get is no. I knew that they wouldn't turn me down because I was asking for something that was reasonable. And they, they agreed to mean most of it. At the end of the day, it wasn't that much of a dollar amount percentage-wise compared to the deal itself. Oh, okay. So they went for it. And uh, a few of the things we, we didn't push too hard that were more expensive or it was borderline of were they actually needed or not. And um, so we, we, I think that that was the only friction, quote-unquote friction really, that we had in this deal.
0: So what are you looking for, Fernando, when you're looking at when you're pushed too hard versus pushing... What are the signs that you look for that indicate to you that you're pushing too hard for something? <laughs> uh,
1: that's a good question. What are the signs? Well, certainly the language used by the other side. In like they that. sound mad almost, like it's that curt kind of
0: business formal <laughs> language instead of this relaxed kind of conversation.
1: Yeah. And I don't know if I can put my finger on it. I, you know, I, I want to almost answer that too. It's just a feeling that you have. Obviously, if, I tend to just ask for whatever I think would be good for me, for the deal, for my side of the deal, and thinking that the worst I can get is a no, and am I risking losing the deal by asking? If I'm unreasonable to what I'm asking, then I guess so, but I don't think that I am mostly (laughs) unreasonable. Of course, that's a biased opinion, but if I ask for something and they give me a good reason and say no and give me a good reason for that, then... If it's not important enough for me, I'll, I'll drop it. I think to look at the big picture, it might not be the the perfect deal, but if you try to go for the perfect deal, you will lose it. You have to really be able to stick to the, to the main points.
0: Gotcha. So you would ask for everything that's on your laundry list here. And then they come back and they say, we'll, we'll give you A and B, but we're not going to give you D through N on your list. Right. And then you go back to, and then it's the negotiation really just around... Well, actually, I think these numbers that you said no to are actually reasonable mm-hmm. and they're low dollar figures. So I'd like you to give them to me. Is, is that kind of your pushback to them on, on a nuts and bolts kind of approach?
1: Yeah, I think that that's what I'm trying to say is really, I try to pick my fights and the items that are really important. You can become, a, anybody can become very difficult to do business with if they don't have common sense and they try to get everything. And that's not a good deal. A good deal has to be good for both sides. So if the deal is to happen, there's going to be some negotiation there that's expected. Uh, But be reasonable is the best advice I can give.
0: Awesome. And just to wrap up this, the point on the bank too is a lot of times when talking about things that are reasonable versus unreasonable, you're really talking about how somebody else feels on the other side of the line, right? Because once they think you're being unreasonable, they usually get upset or angry and then they don't want to work with you anymore. Right. Um, so part of that I'm, I'm thinking about whenever I'm working on these deals is how do I make sure that I'm maintaining really strong relationship with that other person so that way I can kind of push a little harder maybe than I otherwise would have because I know that because I have such a strong relationship, they're not going to be like, oh, the hell with Scott, you know, because I have a strong enough relationship, I can push right. and they don't just end the relationship. Um, right. Is, is there anything that you're doing in a similar vein
1: that worked well for you in that deal or other deals that where you've had to negotiate harder? A couple of things that I can think of. One of them is if you're trying to make a point and trying to gain leverage somehow, uh, having data makes a lot of sense. You know, a typical example is if you're trying to purchase properties and you're trying to get the best price possible. Well, if you do have data from the web, Zillow values are, you know, Zillow is not perfect, but it's a tool. And you have those values, and they work in your favor, well, you can present those as a card that can help in the negotiation. same thing with rents. There's plenty of data there that can substantiate the deal for in your favor hey, I think your point in if you have a relationship with the bank and you are a good customer and you're paying their fees and in this case the mortgages in on time and you don't give them a hard time and so on, of course, going into deals in the future is going to be in your favor. Being a a responsible partner in the deal will always help open doors in the future. So that to me is mandatory and it it is a requirement. So in this case, in this bank, I've gone back to them and we try to do more deals. It just happened it didn't work for other reasons, but they were certainly open to talking and because of what we built and... And the sort of client that I am. So yeah, that's a very important piece of the whole process.
0: That's awesome, Fernando. And I I just want to bottom to underscore that for people is that the most successful negotiators that I've run across are people that are negotiating like you do, where they're extremely nice to the people that they're working with, always very friendly with them, but are really hard on the actual data. Because then it, nothing is personal. It's just right. the numbers are yeah. what they are. They're not what they're not, right? And it's not like you are asking the bank for a favor. That can be kind of manipulative in a lot of ways, right? Sure. And if I just yeah. focused on the data, then we can preserve a really solid, amicable, honest, open relationship with each other on the kind of communication we're having between business partners here, which you and the bank are, but the data is really the problem that we need to focus on because the numbers that you guys want don't make sense. And then you find, my experience has been that's when people are most reasonable and to negotiate in a way that I want them to. That's gonna help me the most.
1: Yeah, because you gotta remember everybody's busy, right? The bank is busy and the investor is busy. But if you are willing to take the time and look at an example that I've given earlier, if you look at the repairs that were needed in this particular deal, You know, I spent the time trying to figure out how much these would cost after being given the inspection report. So when I go back to the bank to negotiate for them to pay for these repairs, well, I have an idea of how much these will cost. I'm not giving them more work by giving them a list of things and they need to go figure out how much these things will cost. I'm telling them, you know, here's a reasonable amount for this, for this, and here's the total. A lot of times they'll look at that and say, yeah, that's good. <laughs> and they'll just, just agree to it because it's an easy reply. doesn't take time and they can see the person has done their homework. And that's important in the negotiation as well.
0: Yeah. And I think that's a brilliant point to make too, is that that, that person, when you already present them with all of the data, that allows them to be able to sell it to anybody they need to, like their boss or something. They say, why did you sell the asset for this? It's like, well, here's all the data. Exactly. So we can yes. because their motivation is to move the asset
1: exactly that's a they don't very good care point. about the price right they just yeah. need to justify it exactly i've worked in corporate america and this is true for everybody everybody has a boss of some sort and if you have to give an underleaning a lot of headaches for him to or her to explain to the boss he might just turn you down right there <laughs> oh <laughs> so yeah make it easy yeah uh, that's a good point.
0: <laughs> make their job easy
1: for them, right? Exactly. It's easy for them to go to the boss.
0: That's awesome. Well, Fernando, I um is this are these types of learning, are these types of education and tools that we talked about today about how to use the data and how to make these kind of data-driven decisions and approaches? Is that all part of what you're um teaching and instructing on now?
1: Yes, I do coaching uh for for clients that want to do something similar that I did, which is really becoming financially independent via real estate and uh, income investing. And if you go to FernandoAries.com, you see some other things that I'm involved with. But uh, yeah, that's part of it. Really understanding mortgage sequencing and how these numbers work, the sorts of returns that you can expect, the different aspects of real estate investing. There's just a lot there. So yeah, that's what I talk to clients and friends about. And hopefully, people are interested, they can go check it out. And certainly, realestatetools.com. If you have any interest in either evaluating properties or keeping track of your portfolio as you build properties, you certainly want to check realestatetools.com. Just really quickly, Scott, there's uh, just two aspects, mainly two aspects to realestatetools.com. We have apps that are free. These are iOS apps for the Apple products. And those uh, allow you to evaluate and uh, one of those called Property Evaluator and the other one is Property Fixer, which is uh, for flips. And it's uh, really easy to download these. These are free and then you can buy uh, more complete versions once you get the free versions. And then the online tool, which is propertytracker.com, allows you to both evaluate and track your properties online. And that's definitely something that you want to have once you have property. So go check it out. That's again, realestatetools.com.
0: Oh, that's excellent, Fernando. I hope everybody goes and, and checks out what you do there with getting into the data of their investments. I find that you're looking at doing using these types of tools, everybody. It's not something that you're making a lifelong commitment to either, right? You can go there, try the tools, get sure. the information that you need from it, make see if it's going to make sense for you. I can almost guarantee though, that after you start getting a good handle on the data of what's going on in your investments, the insights that you're going to have from that, that simplify your life and make you a better investor you're never going to want to go a different direction I mean there's a no. reason why everybody in corporate America everybody in business continually harps on let's get to the data and make decisions based on it right
1: yeah the typical investor the mom and pop uh, people that have a few rental properties they tend to use just a spreadsheet <laughs> just to keep track of income expenses but that just is you have to work in putting the right formulas in place you have to Make sure that you're up to date with what the schedule E should look like. You want to make sure that you properly log what's an improvement versus a repair and keep track of your basis. And the, the tool does all of that. Property tracker does all of that. You just make sure that you input the correct information and it will essentially produce a schedule E for you. And you can just give that a printout of that to your accountant and say, here's the schedule E. Here's the, the, my depreciation schedule. Here's my amortization schedule for my mortgages. It's just a lot easier.
0: <laughs> that's fantastic, Fernando. Yeah, well, uh, that's great. Is And the best way for everybody to contact you is going to be through your website. Is that
1: right? Yes. Yeah, you can get the info there.
0: Excellent. Well, Fernando, I want to say just thank you so much for sharing your insights with all of us today. And I know that I learned a lot from you today about how you're developing the relationships and negotiating using data to leverage uh, your negotiations along with having those relationships to get those leads in. And how important that is. And without the relationship, it doesn't sound like your best deal is ever gonna happen. Because it was from from knowing the people, which means going out there and talking to people. You can't find out everything behind a desktop. You really need to go out there and meet the people, from what I heard from you. So thank you for that reminder, everybody. This was the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. This was our best deal episode with Fernando Idris. Until we talk again. That's all for this best deal episode. And I'm your host, Scott Royal Smith with the Real Estate Nerds podcast. When investments go good, they can go great. Your legendary best deal could be your next one. So keep at it. Thank you for joining us. And if you enjoyed the show, leave a review to help clue in those sleeping masses for what they need to know and what we all need reminders of. Do your good deed for the day and I'll see you again soon.